After the recent release of the 2021 IPCC report, the stark reality of our climate situation has never been clearer. The findings present evidence of irreversible damage to our planet and has labelled our outlook as a code red for humanity that requires urgent and immediate action. While governments worldwide gain momentum on climate action, the demand for specific resources needed in electrification and green infrastructure have and will continue to grow. Within these, Cement and mining are two key sectors that contribute a combined 12% of global carbon emissions. But what opportunities are there for change now and in the future for these essential yet environmentally challenging industries? Welcome to Racing Green, the podcast that explores the ideas, innovations, and influences making waves in the journey towards a sustainable future for our planet. In each episode, we investigate the new challenges, ingenious solutions, and the undiscovered opportunities that lie at the heart of our rapidly changing world. We aim to accelerate a new era founded on optimism and impactful collective responsibility. Today we meet with Fleming Fultman, Vice President of Marketing, Communication and Sustainability for FL Smith, a multinational engineering company focused on eliminating emissions in mining and cement production and leading the transformation of two of the largest and most complex carbon producing industries. Welcome Fleming. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what does FL Smith do? So we've been around actually 140 years. So we're, we're based in Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, but we're truly a global company and work in more than 100 countries across the globe. Uh, we work within uh, mining and cement. And you could say sort of from the get-go, our founding father, FL Smith, he actually won uh, 2,000 Danish kroner, which is, I guess, 200 British pound, 300 euros, something like that, in a lottery. And he decided not to spend the money on on cheap beer, but actually to start an engineering company instead, which is good. From the get-go, it was all about how do you increase productivity within these two industries. And, and 140 years later, that's basically what we're doing. And of course, these days, uh, productivity, doing more with less, is, is, a, is a little bit of a different agenda, and it's uh, more relevant than ever before. So, So that's sort of, you know, Danish-based company, but global in its nature and, and hopefully doing a lot of meaningful things. As an engineering company, how does that relate to mining? So what services do you actually provide to the cement and mining industry? So we are the, the only company that basically, if let's say you wanted tomorrow to start a, a, a copper mine, right, to kind of jump on, on, on the green transition, and we know we need a lot of copper for that. So end-to-end production of, of, of a copper mine, we, we provide the entire technology into that. But of course, we also provide, you can say, the engineering services so we can help you plan the mine. We can help you figure out what's the best technology to use and optimize the entire processes. Uh, we can then sell you all the equipment you need. And we also have a lot of digital services. So the digital tools you would need to operate the entire site and optimize on it, we actually also have those digital services. So so you can say sort of a full flow sheet uh, provider into to mining and, and into cement as well. 
I wonder if you could give us a little bit of background on cement and mining, the scale of these industries worldwide. So if, if, we, if we start out with, with, with cement, right, it, it's the most widely used material in the world. So, I mean, I think that kind of captures it all, right? So it is literally the most widely used material. And it's a great material. And, and you know, we, we, we used it since the Romans. Uh, and of course, now it's everywhere in our everyday life, you know, for road constructions, uh, bridges, hospitals, schools, buildings, basically everywhere you would need cement, which of course then is converted into concrete. And it's the reason why we can build skyscrapers and, and you know, big bridges to stand for hundreds and years and so on and so on. So it's a fantastic material. And again, we used it for many thousand years. You could say it has only one disadvantage, and of course, we'll come back to that, and that is that it has a very, very significant carbon footprint that we're trying to address. But quickly on the mining side, again, let's just use copper as the example, right? So you and I wouldn't have this conversation if we hadn't had copper, right? Copper is the main conductor of electricity. It's also the main conductor of cooling and heating. So wherever in the world you are, if you need heating of a building or you need cooling of a building, you would need copper. Uh, you know, for basically anything in, in the world that needs electricity, you need copper. And obviously, as we want more and more people in the world to drive electric vehicles, use uh, wind and solar energy, you're actually going to need a whole lot more copper. But not just copper, you need more lithium, you need more zinc, you need more nickel, and so on and so on. And that's why mining that also has been around for thousands of years is actually also, you know, in, in really, really high demand. So could you take us through the basics of Cement 101? How do you make it, and why is it carbon producing? It's, it's fairly easy in the sense that you have basically two things that kind of really gives you a headache, right? So the first thing is that the key component in cement is uh, limestone. And about 40% of the limestone is, is carbon. But what you need to do when you want to use limestone, and now I want to build a huge bridge or, or a, a skyscraper, right, is, is I needed to make it into a material you can actually build with. And, and by doing that, you actually heat it up at very, very high temperatures. Well, once you then heat it up, you then release the carbon from the limestone. So that's about half of all the emissions just coming from the material in its own right. Then the other part of the problem you can have then is that then you need to heat up the material. And obviously for the heat, you need energy. And, and historically what you've used, because it is basically, you can see the best material, bear with me, is coal. Because of course, in terms of how much energy can you get out you know, is, is their coal is super, super efficient. Again, that has that unfortunate flip side to it that then the coal also releases a lot of carbon emissions. So it's, it's the limestone and it's also uh, that you would use coal to reach these high temperatures. The good news though is we actually have technologies in both areas that can almost offset, minimize bring that down to very close to zero, right? One is you can actually replace limestone to a great extent with clay, get the exact same quality at the other end. The beauty of it is that clay doesn't release any carbon. The other thing we can do, and we, we've proven that all over the world in, in a number of cases, actually we can replace coal or we can replace the majority of the coal with uh, alternative energy sources. So. That's, that's actually existing technology, right? That's there today. And, and let's keep in mind the big picture. Cement is 8% of all global emissions and it's rising. So, you know, it's a tall order and there's nothing that you can really replace cement with. So, so it's one of those things that you kind of, you know, we, we need to fix this one. But the technology is there and, and, and I think that's the good news. We just need to make sure that we make that conversion 
into these new technologies and we make them very, very fast. Here again, speed is, is of the essence. Turning to mining, is it the same issues in terms of carbon production? So, so the, the carbon there is, as you can say, is a little bit less. So let's say it's between 1% to 4% of global emissions, depending on how you, you account for it. And you see the emissions coming from numerous steps in the processes. So, so the first step is basically when you have a mine site and, and you know you uh, most often have a blast, you have an explosion whereby you release rock and then you want to get the copper, the zinc, the nickel, whatever, out of the rock, and you need to transport it to a site, right? So just that, that transportation, some of the listeners might have seen these enormous trucks, right? And, and that's about one third of the emissions is just the diesel component from these enormous trucks that needs to transport the material. What we've done here, and, and, and also some of, you can say, our colleagues and competitors, is actually, for instance, replacing the trucks with conveyor belts. The conveyor belt, it's more efficient, but it has another advantage to it. That is the conveyor belt uses electricity. And that means once you then decarbonize your energy mix or your electricity mix, you actually solve a lot of the problems, right? But of course, then further down in the process of, of, of making steel, aluminum, copper, and so on, often again here, you use quite a lot of energy in either heating up the material, you use a lot of electricity also to convert the material into basically the stuff that we all need that could go into an iPhone or a laptop or a car or whatever we need in our household, right? We have technology on, in all of these steps in the process where, where, whereby we can minimize the, the carbon emissions in, in that. We've made a pledge that already by 2030, we have promised our customers and of course everybody else that we believe we could run a zero emission mine or a zero emission cement plant. Wow. Now, people like Bill Gates have said that mining and especially cement are very hard industries to decarbonize. Do you agree with that? Um, no and yes. Because we have the technology, right? So, so, so we, we kind of know how to do it. What we don't need, and I don't think we can really afford to, is wait for those guys that are always looking for where's their silver bullet, right? Something, you know, totally fancy rocket science out there. Because again, if we take the cement case, so if you replace the limestone with clay and you replace coal with an alternative energy source, that's two existing, that's proven technology that's there today. And, and actually, you can say, strangely enough, it's actually cheaper than the alternative, right? So then you would ask, of course, why it's not happening? So a couple of things. Of course, most industries are fairly conservative. But these are also industries where they have an investment cycle of, let's say, 25 to 40 years. So that means that if I build a cement plant today in, let's say, Bangladesh, right, the key components of the factory is not going to be changed before maybe 40 years later, right? So that you can say the turnover rate of the equipment is super, super slow. So the question is not that we need new technology. We need to challenge ourselves. How can we speed up the adaptation of those new technologies? And that's where I think kind of Bill Gates and other people, you know, bless them because they're very keen on technology and they like these new interesting things, right? But, but what I would actually need is maybe an anthropologist or a psychologist or a sociologist or somebody else who can come and work with us on how do we accelerate change because the technology is actually already there. But of course, it is existing tech industry. So you can say, and an, you know, mobile phone do have a turnover rate of 17 months, right? 
So, so you're going to replace it. If you have in, in your house, you know, a refrigerator, right? That might change every six, seven years. So, so then there's a normal rhythm to it. The next refrigerator you get is much better than the old one and so on and so on. But our industry is a little bit like shipping and, and airlines, you know, you don't change these every 17 months, you know, you change every 40 years, right? That's also why we need to make the change now because we can't afford to wait an entire investment cycle. Then everything will be too late. You know, is there, a, is, is there an economic barrier in the developing world because of the cost of new technology? Yeah, strangely enough, it probably works the other way around. Um, so, you know, involved now with a project in West Africa, right? Because, you know, if you look at the, the emerging economies, that they need to build up, you can say, more of that infrastructure that, that, that other parts of the world take, kind of take for granted, right? So if you build a brand new cement factory now in West Africa, what they actually want themselves, but, but also the investors, and, and the investors are super important here, is they want something that is kind of, you know, best available technology. So that means that then the carbon footprint now of cement in West Africa will be, you know, maybe half of an EU average or US average, right? Because the problem we have in US, Canada, the European Union, Australia, other parts of the world where, you know, we, we, we were 100 years ago having, you kind of say, you could say an infrastructure boom is that we still run the old plants, right? And there we need a different conversation about having, you can say, forced retirement of old equipment and then maybe somehow compensate the industry to kind of make that, you know, a quantum leap to best available technology. Whereas the emerging economies that is still, you know, of course, in an infrastructure boom, but, but you know, they're still growing very rapidly. They're together with investment banks, uh, you know, different institutions, the World Banks and the likes, you know, there we can actually come in and say, hey, guys, you need a new cement plant, but why don't we, we build you one that is with best available technology? And of course, also, if you're in, in, in Indonesia and you want to build a new copper mine and, and so on and so on, or in, in Zambia and you want to jump onto a, 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 you know, a lithium wave, there we can get the things done from the get-go. You can say, of course, yes, there is a, there is a danger for the, the, the emerging economies that, if, unfortunately, if they decide to buy old technology, then they lock themselves in, unfortunately, in, in, in equipment that we used in the 80s, right? That would be, of course, not really, really helpful to, to kind of put it mildly, right? So, so for the emerging economies, we need to avoid that lock-in to poor technology and help them kind of quantum leap straight into the best available technology. But that's actually what I'm seeing. So that's slightly optimistic. And you can say in the old world, we need to get our act together and, and we need a forced retirement of old inefficient equipment and then use the, the, the equipment that actually do exist today, right? The new equipment is cheaper than the old one, but it's a different scenario, you know, if you have a green field and you're building something from scratch, whether you have an existing plant and then where you have equipment that does work, right? So, so that's two different, you can say, economic cases, right? The, the operational expenditures going forward will be cheaper in, in both cases, right? But, but the guy who already have a plant that's working, you know, his incentive to totally change everything is less than a person who's building something from scratch. We're moving into a very much a digital world, you know, cement mining, very much physical products. What is going to be the impact of digitization within this sector? And how can digitization also provide solutions? So you can say here, of course, the pandemic, you know, has been, you know, a disaster in, in many ways, right? And, and in terms of lives and so on and so on. 
uh, one of the very few, you could say, positive side effects of, of the global pandemic is perhaps a new, renewed focus on digitalization, right? So we have done a lot of remote monitoring of equipment with customers globally. We've done a lot of remote service. We've done, you know, we installed new uh, equipment at a, at a site in Kazakhstan with people that were joining remotely with video cameras and Teams calls and all of that. That's stuff that will carry over into, you can say, sort of the, the post-pandemic era. And you can say one of the beautiful things of that is that once you totally digitize a mine site or cement production, we see from our numbers, you know, that you would spend about 2 to 6% less energy. But just by that one thing, you don't do anything else. You, you literally just add the sensors and the digital equipment to everything and you start monitoring and you have, you can say, artificial learning built into the systems. So that's a huge energy savings by by doing something here that maybe you could say a little bit before the pandemic was kind of, you know, nice to have, which now is, you know, is, is totally, you know, changed and is now need to have, right? And and that will have an enormously positive impact also on, on reducing energy and, and carbon emissions. Do you think the pressure is going to come from investors ultimately? Investors that, that are hungry to take profits, you know, from fast-growing, emerging, large economies, and this sort of impact investing may help to accelerate the types of projects that you'd like to be working on. Absolutely. If I look at the major change that are happening in these industries, I would say it's happening mostly driven by the investor community. And here we talk about, you can say both, you know, the, the private institution could be like the pension funds, which are very progressive in this, but of course, it's also the development banks like the IFC, the private part of the World Bank, but you know, Asian development banks and, and, and the likes. I mean, they are very, very progressive. They come out with really high expectations. Uh, that's super, super positive. Then you see also some regulatory development standard setting in terms of, you know, getting again the regulatory framework in place where you also see, I would say, definitely positive signs. You also see positive signs on something as trivial as, as carbon pricing. Of course, in the European Union now, we've had carbon pricing for a long time, but the price was close to nil, so the impact was less. Now the price is significant and it's going to grow. You see that in parts of the US, you see part of Canada, you see a big chunk of China now going into carbon pricing. Is it moving slowly? Yeah, way too slow, but it's for sure going in the right direction. And if we get you know, the economic incentives in place, a lot of things can then happen. But the last thing that's not happening yet, but it should happen, of course, is that most countries all over the world, you know, the predominant user of a lot of these materials is actually the public sector directly or indirectly. So from public procurement, you need to kind of set into your thinking that the next time I'm going to build a huge bridge, you know, in Bangladesh or in, in Ghana or somewhere else, you know, let, let me put into, you know, the requirement that I would want green cement, right? And I want low carbon steel and stuff like that because the public procurement globally could be an enormous driver towards, again, these low-carbon material. So how do you think we can influence public procurement to really make a difference? I think that you can say there are governments and municipalities, because often this sits with municipalities, right? That, you know, they need to maybe be a little bit better educated on what's actually possible, right? Because a lot of people have saying, yeah, but you can't do this and you can't do that. That's not true, right? You can today purchase low-carbon steel. If you so want, right, you can get low-carbon copper. You can get low-carbon cement. So the next time, you know, big cities somewhere in the world want to have a new metro system or a bridge or school or hospitals, get it into the requirement. And then the industry will follow along because it does exist today, right? But if there's no demand, why would the industry invest into it, right? 
So it's a chicken and an egg, and we need the end users. And in this case here, of course, we as, as consumers buy very little copper directly. We mostly buy it when it's somewhere, you know, in built into other material. But, but if you're the city of Copenhagen, just use that as an example, or the city of Jakarta, right? You have an enormous purchase power. So build that into your criteria and, 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 and the materials are available. Then you send a very, very strong signal to local producers, to regional producers, to everybody that this is actually what we do want. Today in Denmark, we're building, you know, a huge tunnel to, to, to Germany and there's no requirement. And, you know, Denmark often claims that, you know, we're one of the most green, sustainable nations on the planet and so on. And, 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 and it's not there yet. Right. And whenever I can get a little bit of attention here with our local government. I always encourage them to put that into the requirement because it's 50% of all the materials globally somehow is attached to public procurement, directly or indirectly. And they are totally underestimate their own purchase power. Wow, what a great message to end that on. Thanks so much, Fleming, for joining us here today on Racing Green. Thank you very much for having me. Really exciting speaking with you. That's all for this episode of Racing Green. Thanks for joining us. Racing Green is produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Chris Bristow, and Georgina McGiven in collaboration with the Camden Clean Air Initiative. It was recorded at Serendipity Studios, Camden, North London, with music and sound design by Chris Bristow.